and welcome to the sixth episode of Digest Cast. I mean, really, it's something like the twelfth with all the point five episodes. But anyway, <laughs> this is a podcast dedicated to the belief that big things come in small packages. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag. Along with me, as always, is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly. And together, we're known as the Pied Pipers of the Man Children. And we're proud members of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Now, folks, we promised this episode, gosh, when was it, Rob? Ages ago, right? Well, the last episode we did was in April. So okay. <laughs> and that, and that was one of the Marvel ones. And that was, the, that was the .5 episode, yeah. Right. And then, you know, back in, uh, I think it was November of 2017, we promised we were going to cover the particular digest we're covering tonight. Well, we are, we are men of our word. We are here. You have been very patient, and we hope it's worth it. We're excited about this. Well, the, the last time we did a regular Digest episode, DC was, in fact, still publishing Digest. That's how long ago it was. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. Actually, when we last talked about it, it was the winter. And since then, I have been to the beach many, many times. And one of the things I love to do at the beach is I take a Digest with me. And this all came from a suggestion from our good friend, Dr. Ange. Because, you know, uh, some guy I know, I, he's crazy. He has something he likes to call Mountain Comics. And um, my buddy a Ange. dumb name for a show. It is, right? And a Twitter account. Anyway, um, my, my, our good friend Ange has what he calls beach comics, which were digest comics. So I, uh, I, I, bring, I brought this digest to the beach many times this year already and finally got around to reading it and very excited about this. Now, before we get into this, folks, we do need to talk about it. Now, Rob made a joke. He said DC was doing digest. Obviously, that was 1986 is the last time they did digest. But they are doing something. And I really think this was sparked by Marvel's return to the digest. Because, you know, Marvel's in the grocery stores, they're in the, the, the bookstores, or in the Walmarts, they're everywhere. You know, they've got their digest now. And I think DC was seeing this market penetration and getting comics where kids are and realized they needed to do something. And now DC is distributing these. They're not, they're not digest size. They're, they're, large, they're full comic size, but they're 100-page giants, and they're distributing them specifically to Walmarts. And they're doing uh, four, uh, four different ones every uh, twice a month twice a month. And I, I wasn't going to buy them myself. Personally, I said, you know what? Um, as, as cool as I think this is, I wanted these comics to get into the hands of kids, right? I was like, okay, if I go buy them, because uh, our good buddy Ben Avery had been telling me um, in, in, a, in a thread how every time we go to the store, they were cleaned out, and then he was seeing them all on eBay really expensive. I'm like, oh. Oh, man, that's, yeah. That totally <laughs> defeats the purpose, right? So when I went to my Walmart, I'm like, you know what? I hope there's still some there, and I hope the kids are buying them because I don't want to do that. And I get there, and, and DC has built this really cool pointed display box. It's this blue box that displays like two pockets, and it's got the symbols on there. You know, brand new comics twice a month. It's really pretty. Well, I get to my Walmart. My Walmart sucks so much. Oh, my God. I found the DC Comics um, in a stack about mm, six feet up in the air. Not even the display box. <laughs> oh, no. So all you can see is the sides of the comics. Not even oh. like where the, where the logo is. You can just see the pages. If, if I hadn't worked in a comic book shop for four years, I wouldn't know what this stack was. I would just assume it was, I don't know, a stack of magazines or something. I saw it, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. So I pulled the giant stack down. Obviously, they haven't sold any because no one can even tell they're there, and they're even mispriced. I'm like, this is just heartbreaking. So I went out, and I felt like, you know what, I needed, I, I needed to support it. So I bought one of each. I've got one of each of the 100-page giants here, the Justice League of America, the Batman, the Teen Titans, and the Superman. You should check these out, folks. They're great reprints. they got tons of stories. Now, there's a lot of New 52 and a lot of Rebirth stuff in here. More recent, there's even stuff um, from before. Uh, convergence, you know, stuff like, um, not convergence, uh, Flashpoint. Flashpoint, yeah. I mean, there's got like, you know, Batman Hushes in here. Um, Aquaman, Aquaman's got a brief in here. Aquaman number one from the New 52, that great Jeff Johns, uh, I, I, Ivan Reese issue is in the Justice League one. So it's worth checking out. So they're fun. 
definitely. Yeah. And again, I think it's in the spirit of what Marvel's trying to do by getting you know these comics in the hands of kids. So I think this is another win in our column. I think we made this happen, Rob. I, I agree. The old fogey in me loves that the 100-page giant logo is the same like font choice that they had in the originals than when they did them <laughs> in the 70s. I love that. I didn't even notice that. That's awesome. Very cool. All right, well, folks, before we get much further, we should probably take a second to thank our sponsor. This episode of the Digest Cast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. What you got, buddy? Well, based on uh, one of the stories reprinted in this book, I'm picking Batman and the Outsiders hardcover, volume two. And right now I'm hearing the voice of Fiskoid saying, got it. Uh, it reprints <laughs> Batman and the Outsiders numbers 13 through 23 and Batman and the Outsiders annual number one. Uh, all the stories are written by Mike W. Barr. Features artwork by Jim Aparo and Alan Davis. Can't beat that combination. Mm-hmm. Normal price is $49.99. In stock trades price $28.99. That's 42% off. Now, by the cover copy, see if you can guess what movie they were trying to pivot off of. <laughs> it, says, it says Batman and the Outsiders Volume 2 featuring Katana. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Katana's in this book. You might want to buy it, okay? Um, no, it's I got, love... got, like, what, three lines in Suicide Squad, I, I, think. I think? so, yeah. I love Batman the Outsiders. Unironically, I love it. I went back and I read some of the old comics um, in preparation for this Digest discussion. I just love this series. I, I, I just do. So this is a really fun book if you haven't read it. So, again, pick it up. It's 200, 312 pages, which is... Uh, great. Batman the Outsiders, Volume 2 hardcover. You know, we all we, we bag on the Outsiders a lot. A lot of folks that listen to the show aren't fans of the Outsiders. But I gotta tell you, I picked up, uh, and I've already told the story somewhere, but I picked up the Showcase Presents of Batman and the Outsiders and sat down and read it one day. Uh, oh my gosh. It is so much fun. It is, it is genuinely brilliant. fun comics. I loved it. I am now on board with the Outsiders. Now, I don't know how it progresses. I Every story I've ever read with Looker bothers me, so I, hope, I don't know that I'll enjoy it later, but at least these first 20-some issues are an absolute hoot. I, I adore them. Yeah, no, it absolutely doesn't sustain itself. There's no doubt about that, but what comic book ever did? You know, I mean, like... Starman by James Robinson. Well, all right. I mean, all of God's children deserve to be judged on their best work, and I would argue <laughs> that when Batman, Batman and the Outsiders number 19, which is we covered on the oh, Christmas yeah. comics oh, yeah. episode many years ago, to me is one of the greatest single issue comics ever done i still have it in my collection even after i purged my fifteen thousand plus comic book collection i love that series so i never bag on batman and the outsiders even though we make fun of fourth of july and all some of the other teams and stuff. i don't make fun of fourth of july um, i love that concept but uh, but anyway batman the outsiders volume two it's a great book you know you, okay i gotta say one more thing then <laughs> since you brought fourth of july like whenever we would do role-playing games i would always make villain teams that were themed like the fourth of july like i had the revolutionary warrior and things like that. I mean, I, I love that idea of doing just themed villain teams. But anyway, sorry, I'm off, I'm off the reservation. I'm just excited. Anyway, uh, my choice is also based on some things in this digest. I picked DC Universe by Alan Moore Trade Paperback. This collects a bunch of Alan Moore stuff, not not his ongoing stuff like, you know, Watchmen or Swamp Thing, but it's all his other stuff. You know, he had a lot of short stories and one-shots. It's got stuff from Action Comics and Batman and Detective and Secret Origins and Superman and all this different stuff. But specifically, the ones I focused in on is from Green Lantern number 188, which we'll talk about in a minute, and from Omega Men, number 26 through 27, we've got a couple of stories in this 
Reckless Digest, written by Alan Moore, the specific learning here. It's a fun trade paperback. It's 464 pages, written by Alan Moore, uh, art by Fraser Arving, uh, on the cover at least, and a full color. It's normally $24.99, and you can get it for 42% off, which is only $14.49. For these and all your other trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. All right, and before we get uh, started on the, this issue proper, uh, we do want to talk about we are launching a contest, a digest, ca- digest contest, we're calling it, and uh, this is your chance to win uh, eight different digests, seven Archie digests. Yes! <laughs> Which we've coll- I've been collecting off of various newsstands over the last couple of months. I could get into the details of which Archie digests there are, but does it really matter? Uh, <laughs> basically, all you need to know is that it totals, over the course of the seven Archie digests, 1,000 pages. Oh my gosh! Of, of Riverdale fun, and plus <laughs> one other book. Uh, Chad, what is that one other book? It's Best of DC Blue Ribbon Digest number thirty-one, which covers the Justice League of America in special initiation issue. It's one of the ones we covered in a previous episode of this podcast because I stupidly bought an extra one, but I had one sitting on the shelf. So I'm going to throw it into the mix for the prize packet. Yeah, it's it's going to be an awesome mix. It's uh, got seven RT digests and one JLA. Everybody knows how much I love the JLA book. We covered it on the show. So, how do you win this digest? Well, easy. You're going to go to the website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com, and in a comment, you're going to write what is your favorite digest and why. And it can be any digest, modern published, older published, any company, doesn't matter. But you just have to, and you know, that doesn't have to be a whole book length. I know Frank will give us a whole book, but anybody else can just be <laughs> one or two paragraphs explaining why they are picking this particular favorite digest. And then Shag and I will pick one winner at random, and you will win, get in the mail the prize pack of all these Archie Digests plus the JLA. The deadline is going to be October 1st, because we do our, we are planning another episode of Digest Cast for October, so we're going to announce it then. So that's your deadline, October 1st, and you have to leave it on the comment thread for this episode, which will appear on fireandwaterpodcast.com. So yep, it's so very remember, exciting. It's episode 6, so remember episode that. Episode 6, right, episode 6. So again, you're going to win 7 Archie Digest, 1 JLA. Have fun, everybody, and we will read, like, we will read at least some bits and pieces from every response on the air because I'm looking forward to hear what all you uh, have to say about what your favorite digests are. Absolutely. Now, is it fair to say, Rob, that it's limited to folks within the continental United States? Yes, we do need to, because uh, sorry, Martin Gray, um, we do have to kind of, because <laughs> ship, shipping shipping um, a metric brick ton of Archie Digests overseas would be kind of prohibitively expensive, so we will limit it to the United States, so that's the only uh, restriction. And, and really, the real reason we're doing it is that is because about a year ago or so, um, Martin beat me in an eBay auction for a bunch of digests. So, uh, just I, I'm, this is punishment. It's kind of what this really is. So, fair enough. All right, Actions October first, folks. That's your deadline. Actions have con- consequences, Martin. <laughs> All right, so we've been saying it all on this uh, throughout the episode. We we haven't actually said what digest we're covering. All right, we've been hinting at it. We've been talking. Now we've told you guys before if you're paying attention. But it's in frankly, the show notes. <laughs> right, it's in the show notes. We told you back in November 2017. You've seen pictures of me at the beach with my feet holding it. So here it is, folks. It is Best of DC number 71, Year's Best Comic Stories from 1985. Oh, I love it. It is. Uh, so this is. Uh, it's a wonderful cover. All right. So the cover is. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> it's got a bunch of comics that are inside the issue, sort of in the background. They're all they're all surprint, really, because they're all just sol- solid colors. One's orange, one's green, one's blue, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And with his back to all the comics is Ambush Bug in this like really cool kind of like I don't know Salvador Dali, you know, sort of Hawaiian shirt or something. And he's got a blindfold on and he's throwing darts behind him, <laughs> picking the best comics of the year because you know he just doesn't care. He's using his executive authority to just randomly pick whatever he thinks are the best comics of the year. It is an abs- What do you think of this cover? I think it's a hoot. Oh, it's great. I mean, it's it's everything you want out of Ambush Bug. He's just saying, I don't give AF about uh, <laughs> the supposed title of this digest. It's a very irreverent way to go out because, of course, as you'll reveal, Shag, this is a historic uh, particular digest for DC. It is a historic digest. That's absolutely true. So, uh, all right, real quick. Cover date, uh, April 1986. It was actually released January 2nd, 1986, and the editor for the digest itself was Barbara Randall, of course, who goes on to be Barbara Kiesel. Very cool. Only a dollar fifty for a hundred and forty-four pages. A dollar fifty for hundred and forty-four pages. You know, for these DC ones, I just paid four ninety-nine for hundred pages. So, ouch. You know, inflation. So, uh, here's my story because I actually have a personal story with this digest. This digest, and the one in my hand, not I didn't go have to rebuy it. I still have it. This is the very first digest I ever bought. That means I bought it in <laughs> early nineteen eighty-six. What timing? I know, and uh, I'd, I'd been collecting comics for a few years. I just, I guess, I thought I loved the po- the little size. It was at my local, uh, what they call Sing Store, which is basically a convenience store. It's like a Seven Eleven of sorts. And I don't think they'd, I don't think they'd ever carried digests before, but for whatever reason, this one was there. And I picked it up, and the reason ultimately I got it was because there was a Blue Devil story in here. Now, I already had this Blue Devil story because I'm a big Blue Devil fan since issue one. But I just loved the idea of reprinting it, and I read it, and I thought this was super fun. In fact, this was probably my very first exposure to Ambush Bug. I never realized. I never sat down and looked at the dates. So there's a little tidbit for you, Siskoid. This is where I found Ambush Bug first. Um, And I started following him very regularly with the Son of Ambush Bug miniseries. But this would have been the first time I ever came across him. And I love this thing. It's funny. There's some goofy stuff in here. And I'm like, this is fantastic. I am going to buy every single one of these things from now on every month i love this thing and i and i guess i got to the last page which is a letter from barbara kiesel and she basically says uh sorry folks this is the absolute last digest ever so of doing these things for how many years do they do them rob like six seven years eight years uh they started in 79 and this is 86 barely so seven years yeah and they, they pumped out like 150 of these things or something between the various lines, I think. So out of all the digests, I pick out the very last one. What are the odds of that, folks? I'm a serious You know guy. what? I love this new TV show about these doctors going home from the Korean War. I'm going to keep watching it after this. <laughs> Everyone in America watched it, right, the last episode. Yeah, it's so. really, really popular. <laughs> I wonder uh, what happens next week. You know, I, I got to tell you, though, what a way to go out, though. I mean, this thing is uh, – I, I really after rereading it, I'm like, wow, there's a ton of Keith Given and a ton of Alan Moore in this thing. And, you know, for 1986 or 1985, that's a pretty good way to go. Not bad. So, all right, well, why don't we get into it, folks? Uh, what we're going to do, there are a metric ton of stories here. It was a one, two, three, four, five. Eleven. What's that? Eleven? Oh, somebody knows that. Yeah, okay. There's 11 stories. We're going to go through some of them very quickly. Some of them we're going to spend a little more time on. Rob, why don't you take us away with our first story? All right, yeah, the first story is from Superman, number 408, the original series, of course. It is The Day the Earth Died uh, by Ed Hannigan and Paul Coverberg. Yay, Paul Coverberg. Kurt Swan and Al Williamson and Ed King and Gene D'Angelo. I wish you mentioned the colors. 
Uh, on his way to work, Clark Kent sees a distressing newspaper headline that peace talks among the nuclear powers have collapsed yet again. Just then, he looks up in the sky and sees not a bird, not a plane, <laughs> but nuclear missiles. They hit Metropolis, laying waste to everything. Superman emerges from the rubble unharmed, of course, but emotionally devastated at the destruction he has failed to stop. He then meets a young girl who has somehow survived the blast, only to watch the skin fall off her face. As she collapses, she points an accusing finger at the Man of Steel. Clark Kent then wakes up. Of course, this was all a nightmare. But one so vivid that it inspires Clark to put on his costume and head out into the night to do something, anything, to quell his mind. After stopping various crimes and even visiting Lori Lamaris in Atlantis, Superman investigates a United States nuclear missile silo, mulling that with a little effort he could disable all of them. He briefly considers taking up this quest for peace before deciding that would, <laughs> well would played, lead sir. him to constantly having to monitor various governments as they would undoubtedly build more and more weapons. While lost in thought, Superman overhears some kids playing in a junkyard in pursuit of a lost baseball. One of the kids is almost bitten by a rattlesnake. Superman swoops in and saves them, and while talking with the kids, one of them talks about uh, the value of taking risks if you want to achieve your goal, but also making sure to know what you're getting into first. Superman, struck by the kid's simple wisdom, decides that he has to let humanity decide its own fate. The next day's headline at the Daily Planet mentions that peace talks have resumed, and the future now seems a little brighter. And that's the story. Yay! Now, uh, I do want to mention, uh, again, this was uh, plotted or scripted by Paul Kupperberg. And I asked Paul a couple of questions about writing the story because he's a buddy of mine from long back. Oh, wow. And uh, I asked him about, like, do you, do you remember, like, the sort of impetus for the story? And he said, as I remember, the idea for that story, Superman freaks out by the world's nuclear weapons, was at Hannigan's, and I wrote a script based on it. The 16-page length wasn't, uh, again, if I recall, unusual. I, I asked him because I remember thinking it was a little strange that it was only 16 pages. He said, I believe Julie used to sometimes run longer leads with backup stories around that time, but you'd have to dig through the Grand Comic Book database to see if it was unusual. And then I asked him, was there any benefit to these, uh, the, a story getting picked in the best of collections, and mm. how was it done? Was it like by a committee? Was it like the whole company was polled? And did you get anything other than bragging rights being in there? And he said, the picks for these best of digests weren't a lot of different from picking any reprints. No vote, no committee, no discussion. Just E. Nielsen, Brigwell, whoever filling a page count. I'm sure there was some attention paid to stories that had gotten some attention from fans or received a lot of letters in the previous, but there was nothing official about that best of designation. Except if your story got used in it, you were paid a reprint fee. So <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, that's something at least. So it's good. Um, I think this is a terrific little story, and I told Paul this. I think, and I look, everybody knows I enjoy kicking Superman for Quest for Peace whenever I can. But I, I, I genuinely think this story does that whole idea better in 16 pages than hmm. the whole movie did in 97 minutes or whatever. I just think... It's a great, simple little story. You know going in that Superman is not going to accomplish his mission. And, in fact, he's not even going to try. Right. Because he's not going to start stealing nuclear missiles from governments. But, nevertheless, it's great that he is so troubled that he thinks about it. I think it's a great story. By the way, loving the artwork. Everyone who knows I'm not a huge fan of Kurt Swan, but him and Al Williamson make a great team. Williamson gave it a kind of, like, grittiness that I really like. I think it works well with Kurtzwan. I think this is a terrific little story, and I could see why it was uh, picked. I think it's I think it's really special. It's absolutely a fun one. Uh, it definitely sticks with you. I really enjoy the heck out of it. I do have to mention, 
Just because this, the Lori Lomaris Superman thing always cracks me up. So, and, and I'm not trying to you know be mean to the story, but I just have to mention I feel horrible. I always feel horrible for Lori Lomaris' Lori Lomaris's husband because clearly Lori would leave him in a heartbeat for Superman. There's no denying that. And even in here, you know, she's she's talking about how they're reading his thoughts and everything, right? And uh, she says, you know, basically Superman says he's got to go. I'll see you next time. And she's like, consider it a date, Superman, <laughs> you know, as he's leaving. And it's just like, yeah, yes, I worry for him, husband. It's, de- you know, it's like, could you just be any more obvious, Lori? God, the poor guy. Just, I'm ugh. floating right here. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, but no, it's a great little story. And you're right. It's, it is a nice way, especially just the quiet little scene of the junkyard with the little boys, you know, mm-hmm. as, a, as a world microcosm. You know, for Superman to see and observe. And I, and I don't – maybe they do. I feel like they don't hit you over the head with it, you know, and um, I, I enjoy it. It's nice. Yeah, it feels like almost like a PSA type. You could have seen this in one of those giveaway comics that, you mm-hmm. know, like they wanted to do – they did the, that Batman anti-landmine comic in the – I think in the 90s or the 2000s. And I could have seen this as like an anti-nuclear proliferation comic book. I think it just has that kind of feel to it, and that's what I like about it. By the way, and this isn't reprinted in the digest, and this is something that always bugs Shag and I, that they don't reprint covers in these digests. I never know why they don't. Right. Um, this particular comic features a great cover by Ed Hannigan and now William said of Superman in this nuclear waste Oh, it is a good cover, uh, yeah. Yeah, and he's like, nobody survived except me! And you even see a a poor Cabbage Patch doll is lost in the wreckage. It's just, just, well, the destruction never ends. So that was a Hannigan cover? Really? Yeah, Ed Hannigan and Al Williamson. It looks a little little Neil Adams-y. Hmm, interesting. I didn't. I don't see that exactly. Okay. But but anyway. But as you said, you see the signature right below the, okay. the cabbage patch doll. So, but anyway, I think this is. I, I think it's a terrific little story. And uh, you know, th- I mean, this was one of kind of the last year of Superman before John Byrne took over. Um, well, right. So this you, is this is four hundred eight and four twenty four was the uh, when when it became Adventures of Superman. Yeah. Right. 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 So anyway, I think this is a, a great choice by Ian Olsen Bridwell or Barbara Randall, whoever it was that put these together. Uh, a great story. A great way to kick off the digest, too. Yep. All right, we'll get into our next story. Uh, this one's a little more uh, irreverent, maybe, I guess. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a short one. It's only six pages. It's Green Lantern Corps, and it's you've heard of it, folks. I, I don't even have to say it, but I'm going to anyway because it's the purpose of the podcast. It's Mogo Doesn't Socialize. We, <laughs> we all know it. Written by Alan Moore, art by Dave Gibbons, uh, who also lettered it, and colors by Anthony Tolan. It's reprinted from Green Lantern number 188 from 1985. Uh, again, it's, it's probably the most famous Alan Moore Green Lantern story out there. So, uh, well, hey, we'll talk about that in the back end. Okay, so here's the recap. Bolfunga, the Unrelenting, just because I wanted to say his name, Bolfunga, the Unrelenting, uh, was one of the most dangerous assassins around, and he wanted to challenge the most feared and mysterious Green Lantern of them all. So this killer tracks the Green Lantern named Mogo to a forest-covered planet. Now, Bolfunga is, is searching and searching and searching and searching. He, he searches everywhere, but he can't find Mogo on this planet. And he ends up searching for years, and he's continuing to map the whole uh, landscape. It's very unusual the way the landscape and the forest are landscaped. Um, until one late night, Bolfungo puts it all together. He's looking at the maps. The well-manicured forest could only be recognized from space in the shape of a Green Lantern ring around the planet itself. <laughs> so Mogo the Green Lantern wasn't on the planet. Mogo was the planet. <laughs> Big shocker. 
everybody loves this story. Everybody's read this. Well, you know, maybe I'm because I had this digest growing up. Maybe I'm, uh, you know, befuddled and not everyone's read it. But it's it's just a classic great Green Lantern story. I got more to say. But what do you think of it? Oh, it's wonderful. I love it. And Alan Moore, uh, you know, because probably a lot of his interviews and certainly his most famous work, Watchmen and Swamp Thing and The Killing Joke are all so dark and heavy. He doesn't have a reputation as being like a funny guy, but he's, a lot of his stories are very funny, and we'll get to another one that's very funny yep. in just a couple of pages. But this is this is terrific. I mean, he was always so had this great ability to take a concept that we had always lived with in the DC universe for decades, and and look at it in a new way. I mean, I think he was the one that established that there was a Green Lantern that was simply a math formula. Like, I love that idea, too. Yeah. Like, well, it's in this story, I think. Yeah. Is it, was it this one? Okay, all right. I mean, I love that that whole – just that's such a neat idea that, of course, yeah, if, if all different life forms can be a Green Lantern, they're not all going to look like bipeds. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not going to look like humans. So uh, this is great. And this would have made a super animated short if they had ever done this. This oh, would yeah. have been so funny to do because you could just picture the reveal as they – peel out and you see the giant planet. I wonder if they did, you know, and I got to think back because they did, when, when the Green Lantern movie came out, they did an animated short called Emerald Knights and it was a bunch of just little anthology stories about Green Lanterns. I wonder if they did Mogo in that one. I can't remember. I have to go back. It was a, it was a really good short, by the way. Um, the whole the whole series was, uh, that, that DVD, I mean. And so here it is, yeah. Um, uh, Tomar Ray is talking to Aresia because there's some Green Lanterns who cannot attend meetings. Liesel Pawn, for example, is a super intelligent smallpox virus and Krieger's <laughs> On the other hand, doesn't attend meetings, but it's because he's an abstract mathematical progression. There we go. There. Okay. All right. So does this one. All right. And it's you know Alan Moore. He 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 wrote a couple of these Green Lantern backup stories. Um, and it really, as you said, they're just for fun, you know. But the Green Lantern writers have drained every drop of blood they can out of these Alan Moore tales. I mean, Jeff Johns created an entire Green Lantern franchise, which lasted for a few years. I created it whole cloth straight from an Alan Moore backup story. The whole Darkest Night and uh, Sodom Yat and and the and the, the um, all the Darkest Night battles and all that, all of that he just extrapolated from an Alan Moore six page story or something like that. You know, uh, in, in this Mogo story that rattled off a bunch more sci fi names, which I just said a couple, and I wouldn't be surprised if Jeff, Jeff Johns found a way to use all of those in one of his stories as well. That's all I got on this one. What about anything else? No, I just think it's great. And, of course, it's uh, Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. So right. we had a little early Watchmen collaboration here. Yeah, I think it's, 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 it's just terrific. A lot of fun. So, all right, next is my favorite story in the collection. Yes, folks, I realize I'm biased. I don't care. Uh, it is a Blue Devil story, and it is glorious. It is called Trick Trap. Uh, it is written by Gary Cohn and Dan Mishkin, art by Keith Giffen. Told you there's a lot of Giffen in here. Uh, inked by Gary Martin, Todd Klein lettered it, and uh, Michelle Wolfman colored it. It's reprinted from Blue Devil number eight from 1985. Now, interesting, Keith, as I said, Keith Giffen illustrated this thing because um, Blue Devil has kind of an interesting, I don't know, pedicure of artists. Like the first six issues were all illustrated by Paris Collins, and they are unbelievable. Paris Collins, right out of the gate, was just one of the top-notch artists of DC in the 80s. Number seven was drawn by Gil Kane. Number eight by Keith Giffen, as I mentioned. You didn't get like uh, the next few issues are drawn by Ernie Cologne. You've got Mike Chen. I think you heard of that guy, right, Rob? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, he was one of Rob's instructors. I think Rob stole <laughs> gave, the gave me many a bad grade. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they were deserved. Anyway. Um, no. <laughs> anyway, I'm just going to blow past that before Rob blows a gasket. Uh, hey, I'm not going to blow past that you said that Blue Devil had a great pedicure. 
Okay. Oh. You meant to say you meant to say pedigree. I did mean to say pedigree. I say a lot of the wrong <laughs> words. A lot. I'm not so good with the words. Ironic that I'm on a podcast. Anyway, um, Todd Smith did an issue, and then eventually the new regular artist becomes Alan Copperberg. But there's just a lot of really great artists that worked on this book. So, all right, here's your recap, folks. Uh, so, Blue Devil and his best gal Sharon are supposed to be on their first real date, driving around in her 1959 pink Cadillac. Instead, they end up babysitting Jesse. Uh, James Jesse, who is better known as the Flash Rogue Trickster. And in his civilian identity, the Trickster was a movie special effects professional, which then led him to being sort of frenemies with Dan Cassidy, who's the man who's inside the Blue Devil costume. Well, Trickster has gotten himself in some trouble and is being pursued by some other bad guys, so he turned to Blue Devil for help and protection. So Blue Devil and Sharon are trying to keep Trickster behaving, but James Jesse bolts when he receives a threatening message from the bad guys that are pursuing him. Trickster decides that he needs some cash to make his escape, so he plans to rob the nearest bank, which just happens to be 100 feet up in the air, being transported by a helicopter to its new location. Yes, the Trickster tries to pull off a mid-air bank heist, using only his flying shoes, a bucket of paint, and a rubber chicken that houses an acetylene torch. It is just as glorious as it sounds, folks. Uh, So Blue Devil and Sharon, they work together to stop the trickster, ultimately defeating the colorful prankster by yanking off his flying shoes. And instead of letting the police arrest the trickster, Dan and Sharon throw James Jesse into their trunk of their Cadillac and drive away. Ah, I love this thing so much. What do you think of this issue, Rob? Or this story? Oh, Oh, it's a, it's a blast. I mean, I, th- I think it's very interesting that the first, not just two, but three stories following the Superman story are also lighthearted. I mm. think that's a nice balance because Superman story is, you know, obviously very somber and very heavy. And then you get three very, very kind of goofy ones. So um, you mentioned that, like we talked about, there's no covers in this, which yeah. is too bad because the co- this cover is just terrific Of uh, on top of the elevator and the kicks uh, the trickster kicking blue devil in the face right it's yeah really terrific you, it's a great perspective shot yeah paris collins did the cover yeah and, and you see the bank dangling there and uh he, i mean trickster's got these ridiculous size shears blue devil's pulling off the the flying boot sure i mean it's just really well done look it up folks blue devil number eight uh, just google it it is an incredible cover so i love this issue the the first you know 12 to the, the 20 issues of blue devil are just knock it out of the park it's such a great series it's so much fun i cannot believe it's never been collected i don't understand the major malfunction here um they had a showcase on the books at one point and then it just faded away I, I, maybe they just think there's not enough interest. I don't know. But it's so much fun. So much fun. I will mention, uh, based on the conversation you had uh, with on the previous JLI about the butt shots yeah. of, like, fire. And this issue features one of the most conspicuous ass shots of Blue Devil of a male superhero I've ever seen. Page 11, where Trickster is just standing there floating in the air. And we are, like, getting a face full of Blue Devil's <laughs> nether regions. I mean, it is – Keith Giffen is trying his best to shove that in our faces. Well, you know, maybe there's something to that because we talked about it on JLI, and that was 1989, and that's Keith Giffen doing those layouts. And this is 1985, and Keith Giffen's drawing the pencils. Maybe he's got a thing for butts. I don't know. Maybe he likes big butts and he cannot lie. Oh, boy. I'm moving past that. Uh, you know what the outgoing song is going to be on this episode now, right? Yes. No, <laughs> no, it is not. Uh, you know, page page 12, uh, there's, a, there's a gag uh, here. Now, I'm looking at it as a scan from the original comic, so I don't have the digest in my hand. So I wonder if this works in the small form. But when Trickster gets dunked into the water, there's a sign 
that says like no this, no yep. that, and you see there's absolutely no swimming, no diving, no loud music, and then it's like no thought, no words, or superhero titles. Which right. Is well, the, the best part is who is, who signed the sign? Who, whose name's at the bottom? It says uh, Prince Namor. Right, Prince Namor. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love this thing so much. I mean, the gags in here, and you know, I, I gave the short version of the battle with Blue Devil, but it goes on for several pages. I mean, Trickster gets the upper hand several times, and it is genuinely funny. I mean, it is you know, funny comics are hard to do. Humor is a hard, hard thing to pull off, and they really make it work here. And um, I just can't say enough good things. I, I don't want to sit here and kill the jokes and go on and on about them, but definitely check it out, guys. Again, Blue Devil number eight, or pick up this digest. You will not be disappointed. Yeah, it's a, the Blue Devil was a was a great title and an underrated title for sure. Absolutely, I've still got the poster yeah. on my wall uh, that uh, promoted the, the launch of it. Blue Devil, we've made comics fun again. <laughs> Very good. Uh, all right, next up is uh, Brief Lives from Omega Men number twenty six. Everybody's favorite title, Omega Men. <laughs> uh, no, this is much like the Green Lantern Core uh, story. This is the backup. This is not the main Omega Men story. I do want to compliment the artwork in the in the main Omega Men stories by Sean McLaughlin. Uh, Sean, Sean McManus, not Sean McLaughlin. He's a writer. Uh, but anyway, that's not in this book. Anyway, uh, Brief Lives is one of the Vega backups, like the stories of the planet. It's by Alan Moore. And or system star system, excuse me. Uh, Brief Lives is by Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill. We worked together uh, another on the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Uh, this this story is only four pages long. Uh, the Spider Guild finds that they are powerless to conduct an invasion of a planet whose inhabitants are too long to live to notice them. And the whole gist is that the Spider Guild like lives its whole life, like many life cycles, trying to take over this planet that has these two giant stone statues, and they go through basically like, the whole cycle of existence. While these statues barely even notice. And then one of them contemplates, did you see something down there? And he's like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about where are you. Life's too short. Uh, it's yeah, a for, great gag. Because yeah. from the creation of their society to the end of it is literally like a puff. It's like poof. Right. That's exactly. It. Right. We see they did this. They parodied this on The Simpsons, too, at one point where Lisa went into a microscopic world. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an old gag, but it's a great one. It's a great – I remember reading this comic. I bought Omega Men off, off the comic stands at the time, and I remember reading this and just thought it was just terrific. It's really funny, but it's, a, it's kind of wise in its own way, and the Spider Guild is – you know, it's kind of like making fun of the Spider Guild, even though they're like really creepy. And as drawn by Kevin O'Neill, they're horrific. Yes, they're they really, are. They look like you know, a Brundlefly from the Jeff Goldblum movie, except they, they're, they're sentient, they're talking or whatever. It's really creepy. So this is, again, a great – Great, fun little story. And once again, Alan Moore could tweak the universe that he was playing in and take it seriously but have some fun with it too. Yeah, and, and you know, if you put Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill together, it's almost like a 2000 AD story. It really is. It, it feels like a 2000 AD story wedged into the DC universe to me. Yeah, I mean, right. You could, you could have done this without – it being the Spider Guild. It mm-hmm. could have been a, another alien race that had no connection to the DC universe at all. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it feels like a, you know, like a little short story. You might, it, it works with the visuals, luckily, but I mean, it feels like, you know, a little short film you might have seen or a little short story read in like a science, one of those astounding science fiction uh, pulp books or something. Yep. Like that. It's terrific. It's terrific. In and out in four pages, and it tells everything you need. And, and we've talked about it this long, and yet it was only four pages. Oh, yeah, fun. it's really good. Uh, sorry, next up is yet another Alan Moore story. <laughs> Alan Moore really kind of dominating the proceedings here. Um, but this one, this is one of the classics of, of uh, his time at DC Comics. It is Rite of Spring, 
from Swamp Thing number 34, of course, by, again, by Alan Moore. And the art is by Steve Bissett, John Tottleman, John Costanza, Tiana Wood, the colorist. Having successfully rescued Abby from literally the pit of hell, Swamp Thing gets to enjoy a brief moment of peace. He and Abby sit on the edge of the swamp, enjoying a beautiful spring day. After taking a walk, Abby admits that she has fallen in love with someone. Swamp Thing asks her if she's told this person, and she says that's what she's trying to do right now. Knowing that a traditional relationship, i.e. a sexual one, is pretty much out of the question, Swamp Thing offers an alternative. He hands Abby a tuber growing from his body for her to eat. Reluctantly, she takes a bite and soon has a hallucinogenic experience. She sees the world as Swamp Thing sees it, experiencing a connection to the green. She feels the connection between all things and the connection between herself and Swamp Thing. When Abby emerges from this dream, she quietly asks, Does this mean we're going out? Uh, and uh, at that point, their relationship is, is sort of consummated, and they will be a couple throughout the run of the Swamp Thing book. This is a, uh, you know, this is a bona fide classic. Um, I don't think there's any much of an argument about that. I would argue that this book, this story probably doesn't work well in a digest format because the during Abby's hallucinogenic dream, it's a series of double-page spreads that are infinitely detailed, uh, almost out of the microscopic level, and you lose a lot of it at the digest format. You just can't help it. Well, Nevertheless, Barbara talks about how she actually story. had to cut this issue up a little bit because of the way those pages laid right. out. She actually had to right. cut them up and to make it work in the digest format. Right. It's a classic. It's beautiful. It's sweet. It's a little daring. <laughs> you know? Okay. I mean, think think about that this was this wasn't too long after the comics code had been dropped off of the Swamp Thing comic, so they knew that they were pitching this to an older audience, but nevertheless, we are talking about a human woman, a human woman having a quasi-sexual relationship with a no longer non-human person. That is something that Alan Moore would explore in later issues of Swamp Thing, but it's it's beautiful. It's touching. It's sensual. It's it's great. It's it's just it's Alan Moore and Bissett and Tottenham on all thrusters here. It's an excellent story, but you're right. It it really doesn't belong in a digest. I mean, the art it does work pretty well because I'm holding the digest in my hand. You know, artistically, you're right. You do lose some of the detail, but it still works. It's impressive. But they are clearly having sex. I mean, it's yeah. she is sweating. She is having you know uh, o faces, if you will. She when she comes out of it, her shirt's falling off. I mean, it's even even that's designed to look like she's putting her clothes back on after sex. I mean, it's <laughs> I don't know what I thought as like a fourteen year old boy when I read this, but I probably read it several times. I bet. Um, so it it definitely uh, was a little too mature, but uh, as an adult reading it, it really is a beautiful story, and it's very uh, gorgeously illustrated, and um, it's very touching. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it gives you a great example of the variety of stuff DC was publishing in 1985. I mean, this is you know pretty wide range of stuff. And it gets you thinking about Swamp Thing too differently. Like at one point when she's when she's connected to the green and she sees all of life, she sees all these lights inside of him. She's like, "Wow, you're full of lights." He's like, "No, those are insects that live inside of me." Yeah. You know, it's like, "Wow, okay, I never considered that, but that makes perfect sense." You know, it's like, "Wow, okay, um, yeah, powerful story." Yeah, and by the way, I should mention the Rite of Spring, for which the story is taken, the title is taken, is a ballet, an orchestral work by Russian composer Igor Stravinsky. So, in Ooh. case you, you know, when I was a kid, like I was sort of familiar with that phrase, I'd heard of it, but I didn't know what it was. And again, it's Alan Moore, you know, taking things, being influenced by things other than other comic books, which is which is nice. Yeah, you know, as much as people like to take the piss out of Alan Moore, and I did myself earlier, it's um, he really helped elevate. The, the the mainstream comics. He really did. Yeah. So um we, we owe him a debt of thanks.
Yeah, whether he's a sort of just sort of um, reactionary crank now has nothing to do with the fact that during his heyday he was terrific. Yeah, one of the best artists ever to do it. So this is a wonderful story. Uh, all right, next up is uh, the Silent Treatment from Batman and the Outsiders, the aforementioned Batman and the Outsiders, number twenty-one. Uh, this story is only seven pages. It's by Mike W. Barr, Jerome K. Moore, John Costanza, and Adrian Roy. Set to a radio announcer calling a football game between Gotham City and Metropolis, a gang attempts to steal a precious artifact that is being delivered at a Gotham museum that uh, being delivered to a Gotham museum that Katana has been enlisted to transport. She manages to get the priceless vase to the museum where members of the GCPD are waiting for the armed hoodlums. That night, Katana relaxes with a book, a warm cup of tea, and a cat snoozing at the foot of her bed. Again, a very simple story. It's part of a, um, a triptych of stories uh, by three different artists, all written by Mike W. Barr, of course. And there's one featuring Geoforce, one featuring Black Lightning, and one featuring Katana. And this is the one that they pick was the Katana story. And, you know, it, there's not much to it. But it's nice. It's it's Mike W. Barr having fun of, like, can you tell a story with essentially no words? I mean, obviously it has lots of words because you've got the narrator. But Katana never speaks. Um, and so it's, it kind of reminds you of that issue of G.I. Joe with Snake Eyes who never talks. So it's, it's always a nice experiment to see if you can pull the story off without having the main characters actually talk. Well, the, the, and the beauty of it, too, is the announcer doing the, the football game or whatever it is or sports game, sports ball, it, it all mirrors exactly what's happening in the story. Right. So, I mean, they talk about he throws the pass and in that case she's throwing the vase to the curator and one of the football players his name is like curator it's a playoff curator you know in this in this museum curator who's doing it and it's that's what really got me if if the if the announcer hadn't been doing all of that dialogue the story wouldn't have been that interesting you know if, if we had actually heard what was being said what made it more interesting was how the story matched up yes. with the sports and uh I, I found this one fascinating. I because you know the showcase I read stops before this issue. Um, the showcase just goes through issue nineteen, I think, or at issue twenty. And so I hadn't read this one uh, at least in many many years, and uh, I loved it absolutely. Just this one was one of my favorites in the digest, uh, at least uh, of ones I hadn't remembered. Um, it really surprised me. Yeah, it's cute. It's the perfect length, seven pages. But you know, doesn't wear out its welcome. Um, I do want to mention two things related to this issue of Batman and the Outsiders, but that don't get reprinted in the the digest, just because when else am I ever going to talk about it? Uh, this this book features a great splash page of talking about the three solo stories you're about to see, mm-hmm. and it's Halo and Metamorpho, and Meta- Halo is complaining that she doesn't get a solo story, mm-hmm. which I think is great. It's really cute. I love that kind of stuff, and the Geoforce story, which is uh, drawn by Trevor Von Eden is titled Jaws 4 Gotham Zero. <laughs> and I have to assume that Mike W that is Mike W Bar's riff on the fact that the original Jaws 3 movie was to be called Jaws 3 People Zero. I have to assume uh, that, that he knew that and that's what his riff on uh, on that title is. So that's it's, it's clever. Fun, fun, fun book all around. And I'd say of the three stories, I think I like the Geoforce one the best, but I'll have to maybe wait for, you know. Another Batman and the Outsiders podcast that Michael Chioscuro is surely working on. It's cooking but, up. It's uh, cooking up. Once his twins get into college, that's right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, anyway, this is this is a this is a good story again, and, and nice and short. You know, like and paced well. And we had we had the the Superman stories kind of mid length, and then you had two short stories, and then the Blue Devils are longer, Swamp Thing's longer, and now you have another short one. So it's it's nice uh, nice pacing in this digest. Awesome. All right, well, the next story, speaking of short, is only five pages. And interestingly enough, it was originally eight. 
But because of space limitations in the digest, they were able to chop it down from eight pages to five. In fact, they changed the name too. It's, it's an ambush book story, uh, our, our cover, you know, feature, if you will. And it was originally called Sellout, but here they've actually changed the name to Bits of Ambush Bugginess, which I got to imagine uh, at this point, when, when this story was first published, it was really being used. It was in Action Comics, uh, number 565, by the way. It was really being used to help promote the first Ambush Bug miniseries. And part of the reason I'm suspecting they put it in here and were willing to cut it up and change the name and everything is because they're trying to promote the second Ambush Bug miniseries, which is about to start at this point. So it all works well. All right. Uh, plot and penciling by Keith Giffen. Robert Loring Fleming did the script. Bob Oxner did the inks. John Costanza was the letters. And Anthony Tolan was a colorist. And again, here it's called Bits of Ambush Bugginess. Reprinted from Action Comics number 565. Okay, so here's your recap. Everybody's favorite fourth wall breaking guy who wears a two tone color mask. Well, at least everyone's favorite until Deadpool came along. Uh, he shows up in Action Comics to recruit the other DC icons to appear in his upcoming miniseries. No, seriously, he's asking Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, and the new Teen Titans to guest star in his miniseries to help increase the sales in the first issue. Well, he's turned down emphatically and violently by all of the heroes. But I gotta mention my favorite part Ambush Bug teleports into the Batcave. And he ends up landing right on the top on the rim of the giant penny. And his feet start to, you know, go like a Scooby-Doo cartoon almost. Like, you know, and he ends up causing the penny to hilariously roll around the cave and ultimately crash. It's only like two panels, but it is an absolute hoot. It cracked me up. So what did you think of this short five-page story, Rob? Oh, I love it. Oh, it's I love these three ambush book stories in action comics. I think it was great. I I really like the shot they take at Wonder Woman. Oh, wow. uh, Which is when... When he calls her sweet cakes, and she's like, sweet cakes, and then you see him uh, up in the tree, obviously she's decked him, and he says, boy, those Amazons are touchy, I would be too if I had her sales figures. Ouch, <laughs> right, because right. this is before right. Perez, of course, wow. Yes, and I love that, uh, that when we discover Batman, he is talking about this is the hardest puzzle he's ever had to face in his career, and it's a crossword puzzle. I just, It's just Keith Giffen and Robert Lauren Fleming just taking the piss out of DC's icons, I think it was... I love it. I love. I loved Ambush Bug. I still do. He's just great, and so this is. I'm. I'm glad that they. Not only is he on the cover, that he's you know got a story in the book. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm laughing again at the penny rolling. It's just the way Ambush Bug is flapping his arms and his feet at the same time, going whoa, whoa, whoa. It's just freaking hysterical. So that's awesome. Okay. Uh, up next is one of the long stories. This one's 24 pages. This is from DC Comics Presents, and it's a team up between Superman and Adam Strange. It's called. The Ghost of Krypton Past. Uh, writer Carrie Bates, artist by Klaus Janssen, uh, letter Gaspar, and is reprinted from DC Comics Presents number 82 from 1985. It is, uh, here's the recap. Unknowingly, the planet Ran, uh, like Adam Strange's planet, the planet Ran, is, uh, its galactic orbit has taken it to the spot in the universe exactly where Krypton exploded some 30 years ago. Now, around this time, Adam Strange's wife is possessed by a soul-sucking succubus, try saying that three times fast, uh, uh, from Kryptonian legend. And this succubus is intent on destroying the planet Ran and devouring all of the souls of the inhabitants. Well, Sardath and Adam uh, call Superman for assistance, but they're able to defeat the succubus by using some of the old Kryptonian tactics. And in the end... Superman joyfully spends some time just floating in space, communing with the lost Kryptonian souls that are out there, sort of as ghosts. So, uh, what do you think of this one, Rob? I liked it. I, I, the story I think is good, but what sells me is the artwork. I think Claus Jansen's work here is unbelievably good. I don't think 
he gets enough credit as an artist by himself. He's most famous as an inker, of course, and he inked uh, Frank Miller on The Dark Knight Returns. But his work in this, I think, is absolutely outstanding. I love how he draws Adam Strange in Atlanta. I love the way that they sort of their body language between the two of them. They really are. They are definitely one of the more sort of um, what am I like romantic couples yeah. of the DCU in terms of how much they are hot for one another. And <laughs> that's, always, that's always sort of been conveyed. There's a full page shot of Superman and it's all like backlighting. Oh, um, I could, I think this is one of the greatest like single art jobs I've ever seen. I love the way he uses the, the ghost of Krypton, Krypton past, like the story, the uh, word, the, um, Title comes in with Adam Strange just standing there. I think this is just great. I, I close Jansen. It's like I wish he had done more penciling because this this is beautiful. Um, we're not exactly in the same camp here. Um, I will say there are some panels here that are absolutely stunning. Like page twenty three, where Superman's floating out in space and just communing with the ghosts. And it, as you, I think it's the one where you talk about where he's all backlit and he, he's yeah. almost all in black. He's just floating there happily, is what it is. And it's it's an incredibly powerful page. And yes, uh, Alana and Adam are wonderfully touching. And, and the monster, the succubus. There's some great panels of them. They got some funky lobster claws, which are a little weird. But uh, and there's some great action shots where Adam Strange just looks great flying through space. But Overall, I just Klaus Jensen is always uh, I don't know. There's just something about him that I, I, muddy's not the right word, but there's something dark and black and inky on him that I just struggle with sometimes. So I I didn't love this story, and part of it too is it's just so right seconds before the crisis, and you know this story can never happen again. I mean, the ghosts of Krypton, yeah, that that's totally thrown out the window five minutes later when crisis hits. So. It just it doesn't really appeal to me all that much. Sorry. Oh, oh my. Well, you know, different strokes for different folks. How's that? I mean, look, maybe if it had been drawn by somebody that I wasn't a big fan of, I wouldn't be as 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 hot on it. Yeah. You know, I don't know, but I mean, I just look at these pages and I'm like, God, this thing is just so unusual looking, and uh, I just love everything about it. It is unusual is a very good word for it. It is very very different, especially for DC Comics Presents, which had kind of a traditional house style. So again, yes, there yes. are some, as I said, beautiful pages in here. So it's so. Yeah. Yeah, I shouldn't. I'm not knocking. I'm, either way, we'll just move on. So, all right. <laughs> Next story is another short one, a six-pager. It's another Green Lantern core. This one's called Forever Blowing Bubbles, written by Mike Barron, art by Marshall Rogers, uh, letters by Ben Oda, and colorist is Anthony Tolan, and is reprinted for Green Lantern number 187, also from 1985. Uh, we're introduced to a Green Lantern named KT, and she is a mother and an expert glass blower in her civilian identity. And in this adventure, she is protecting her planet from the evil warlord uh, Pommel. And after the warlord captures KT inside of a yellow super strong bubble, she escapes by blowing another bubble, this one red, inside of the yellow bubble. And she strikes the red bubble, which then in turn breaks the yellow one uh, with a green lantern ring, uh, thereby sidestepping the entire uh, yellow ring weakness and defeats warlord Pommel. So, um, real short, real get to the point. There's certain things I do love, like uh, Marshall Rogers. I love his redesign of the Green Lantern costume, but like the baggy pants, it just looks really sharp. Uh, it looks like it's a cool design. Um, what, what do you think of this one, Rob? I think it's cute. I, I don't. I didn't have a huge reaction to it one way or the other. I like the detail at the end that the little kid is wearing an S Shield T-shirt. Mm-hmm. That was a nice little detail, and I like the idea that of course some Green Lantern would figure out how to get around this dumb yellow weakness that they've got. <laughs> like for God's sake. So it's cute. I didn't. I didn't have a. You know, I didn't dislike it, but I didn't come away going, "Oh my God, that was really mind bending." But it. It, it would have been. It's a great backup feature. 
You know, like yeah. it's exactly what these Green Lantern Corps things are supposed to be—like a little slice of life in the in the grander universe. Yep. I, my my only thing to take away from it is just it's it doesn't like if you look at some of the Marshall Rogers stuff from the seventies, amazing, just gorgeous, dynamic, beautiful. This doesn't quite seem like some of the other Marshall Rogers stuff I've seen. So it's much, it's more cartoony. Yeah, and simple too. Like the backgrounds are very simple. Yeah. There's not a lot of detail to them. So and maybe it could be you know, hey Marshall, we need this knocked out in a day. You know, whatever. I don't know. But um, it, but it's fun. It's like you said, fun is the right word. Next up is uh, Batman in Just as Night Follows Day from Batman number three eighty three by Doug Menick, Eugene Collin, Alfredo Alcala, uh, Albert de Guzman, Ben Oda, and Adrian Roy. After being out all night as Batman, Bruce Wayne returns to Rain Manor for a good day's sleep but finds he is unable to get any rest when a series of responsibilities, big and small, await him, like conducting Wayne Foundation business, meeting with Gotham's Child Welfare Bureau concerning the adoption of Jason Todd, and a date with Vicki Vale where they have to discuss uh, the future of their relationship. <laughs> By the time Bruce finishes all these tasks, it is night again, so he has to go back out on patrol as Batman. After staying up all night and stopping several crimes, uh, the sun finally rises, and Batman decides not to return home, but catch a few Zs on the ledge of a building using a stone gargoyle as a pillow. <laughs> um, I bought this comic off the stands. I was buying Batman for many years. I This is a really charming story. I mean, I like the idea of getting into the nitty-gritty of, like, what is it like to be Batman and be up all night, all the time? Like, how does he do it? And it ends with Batman smiling. Like, yeah. how many stories can you say that have that? Um, and also, well, there's that. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, the idea that, like, you know, that, that, of course, Bruce Wayne has to be awake during the day because he's a multimillionaire that runs a business. Like, he, you know, he has to attend meetings and stuff. His life just doesn't turn off just because he's been out all night. So I think uh, Doug Menick takes a, a, an idea that we probably all have considered here and there and, and does a nice, it's a nice one-off story with it. I mean, it, it's the perfect, you know, 21 pages. You wouldn't want to see this extended into a multi-parter, but as a nice little day in the life of, it's great. Yeah, the word is charming. That's that's really the word to describe this whole thing. It's absolutely charming. It's it's adorable. The art is beautiful. The uh, the the story is fun. Everything you just said matches perfectly what my notes were going to say. Basically, is just learning what Bruce Wayne has to put up with is a hoot. And it's funny though too because as the story goes along, you think, okay, you know, Bruce has accomplished this hurdle. Uh, there we go. He gets to go to sleep finally. Oh no, here comes another ridiculous thing he couldn't have predicted. Right. You know, it's not yeah. like he has a full full day calendar. It's just every time he thinks he's about to go to sleep, something goes wrong. You know, there's people working on his house and you know the roof collapses and you know uh, Jason's bus breaks down and just all this ridiculous things and it's, it's fun it, it, I genuinely laughed while reading this one I really enjoyed it all the stuff that regular people have to deal with on top of the fact he's Batman right yeah exactly super fun really really dug this one uh, let's see uh, last story here in the book is uh, it's from a, what a way to close out the digest right it's from Atari Force number 20 and it's one of these backup stories it's about the Hucka and it's a uh, Hucka versus the Bob it's only seven pages another Keith Giffen uh, one he plotted and penciled it uh, script again by Robert Lauren Fleming inks by Carl Kessel uh, Bob LePan is the letter woohoo uh, amazing letter and Thomas J. Zuko is the colorist and uh, th- here's the thing the, the Hucka if you're not familiar with the Hucka he's this strange little domesticated creature with a very limited vocabulary and in the story he is given a personal pal a robot called Bob as a gift well the Hucka and Bob have some fun in the afternoon together 
until Hucka is accidentally hurt and then decides to take his revenge on Bob by trying to destroy him in the toilet. Well, in the water, Bob malfunctions, and then he tries to kill the Hucka. And there's a whole bunch of basically Tom and Jerry-style hijinks here. It's pretty funny. And in the end, the Hucka is left uh, with a repaired Bob, and we're left to wonder with our tongue firmly planted in our cheek just what horrors will happen next. So, super fun little story. You don't have to know anything about Atari Force, anything about anything, just to pick this up and read this story. It's a cute little one. What would you think? It's okay. Um, I love, yeah, I love, look, hey, 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 hey. I love the Ambush Bug. I love the Blue Devil. This one is a little, sometimes Keith Giffen and Robert Lord Flang, I feel like, could leave me behind. This one leaves me behind a little. I'm just like, all right, I, I get it. I'm just not laughing. It's just kind of, like, strange for its own sake. It's fine. So, you know, I was like, okay. And I... Knowing this is the last story DC will ever print in a digest, I'm all like, really? This is how we go out with the Hucka versus the Bob? Oh, well, all right. <laughs> well, I think the Bob is hilarious. Look, he's this cute little robot until he turns evil and he gets, his eyes turn red and he grows these red teeth. And he's shooting at the Hucka. And there's even like, you know, the the old deer, not deer, the duck game where you shoot a duck and it, it goes left. And then you shoot the duck and it goes right. And you shoot left. And it just ding, 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 back and forth happens. It's, it cracked me up. I, I hear what you're saying, but it, you can't. Look at this as being the last digest ever. Because even in here, Barbara says, you know, um, this issue is a first and a last, blah, blah, blah. We may publish digests again later on, but for now, we'll say goodbye to you. So they weren't thinking the digest format was over forever. It was just over for now. So uh, they weren't trying to make by a the, statement. By the way, this is also the last story published in Atari Force, because this was the last issue of Atari Force. Oh. So Hucka versus the Bob not only closes out our t- Atari Force, but it closes out the Digest. I thought Atari Force went to issue 21. Okay, my bad. Right. I, I think, no. It well, there, it was, the well, there's a special that comes after it then, or something okay. like that. But, I mean, it says on the cover, final issue, Atari Force. Uh, the okay. Uh, All right. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, that's it, folks. That is Year's Best Comic Stories, 1985, Best of DC Blue Ribbon Digest number 71. The last digest DC ever published, and it's a hoot. It's a good one. Oh, it's a great collection of stories. Very diverse, uh, despite the fact that it's so heavily Giffen and Alan Moore. But, I mean, in terms of the characters, I mean, you're always going to have Superman and Batman. They were never not going to publish them. Uh, I'm a little sorry that, you know, maybe we couldn't get, like, a House of Mystery or Sergeant Rock or Aquaman or Wonder Woman or Flash. But whatever. It's fine. It's a nice mix. And it really does show you that DC was really branching out in the mid-'80s. Did Aquaman even have uh, anything in 85? Was that the Hamilton series? No, or was that uh, yeah, they could have 80s. Yeah, they could have done that. I guess that would have been a, a big book. You know, to publish one chapter of a miniseries might have been a little strange. Because most of these stories are, are essentially one-offs. Yeah. You know, they, they're self-contained, which is good. You, wanna, you don't want to have a multi-parter in your collection. So. Especially the last so issue it's something of the collection. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right, folks. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick podcast promo break. When we come back, we are going to uh, read your comments on episode 5.5, that ridiculous .5 scheme. Anyway, uh, on the Marvel Digest for Thor, X-Men, and Black Panther. Come back after the break. Adventures into the unknown. Tales from the Crypt. Skeleton Hand The Haunt of Fear The Vault of Horror Adventures into Terror Strange Tales Uncanny Tales Journey into Mystery The House of Secrets The House of Mystery The Phantom Stranger Doctor Thirteen Doorway to Nightmare The Witching Hour Strange Suspense Stories 
Worlds of fear. Chamber of chills. Terror tales. The beyond. Tomb of terror. Weird war tales. The twilight zone. Creepy. Dark shadows. Vampirella. The haunted tank. The heap. Eerie. Swamp thing. Weird mysteries. Tomb of Dracula. Tales of the Unexpected. Werewolf by Night. The Demon. Man Thing. Monster of Frankenstein. Brother Voodoo. The Son of Satan. Night Force. The Living Mummy. The Sandman. Tomb of Darkness. Evil Ernie. Saga of the Swamp Thing. Flinch. Hellblazer. Thirty Days of Night. Preacher. The Walking Dead. What do these titles have in common? All of them. From Adventures into the Unknown, to Tales from the Crypt, to the House of Mystery, to the Tomb of Dracula, may be found in the Long Box of Darkness. I'm your host, Herman Lowe. Join me every Monday night for a journey into comic book horror as we delve into the secrets of the long box of darkness. So listen if you dare, puny mortals, to the long box of darkness, available on Stitcher, iTunes, and Podbean. And check out the blog at www.longboxofdarkness.com. Good night and pleasant screams. <laughs>
also listen as we goof around, make jokes, and make fun of John for mispronouncing names. I do that a lot. Sometimes we'll pick a topic and review and discuss comics that relate to the topic. And sometimes we'll pick up a comic and see what discussion topics come up. Sometimes we'll spend an entire episode talking about how much Maggie loves Batman. The only thing that's almost as strong as my love for you is my love for Batman. The Married with Comics podcast. Available directly on our site at marywcomics.lipson.com, on iTunes, and wherever good podcasts are found. Also, check us out at Facebook at the Married with Comics podcast. We've got everything you need. And we're back with listener feedback, as we talked about before the break. For These are the comments from episode 5.5 on the Marvel Digest's Thor, X-Men, and Black Panther. Uh, before we get to that, though, I do have to thank... Uh, our pal Nicholas Prom from the Comic Reflection Podcast, who sent me this really cool book. It's called Pocket Comics, and it's a reprint of, a, I think, a 1940s attempt at sort of a digest, and it was called Pocket Comics, and this is a full-color reprint of this book. Now, the book itself is not digest size. It's more like a, uh, like a, a standard trade paperback book, so this is a digest if you're like Galactus or something. But, uh, <laughs> but nevertheless, it's, it's, I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I mean, it's like all these sort of features and superheroes I've never heard of, but it looks really interesting, and Nicholas just sent it to me um, out of the blue, so I really thank him for that. I, I really appreciate it. It's part of, much like how Shag has like a, a stack of 10,000 comics next to his bed he hasn't gotten to, I have True. a stack of books I have not gotten to yet, and this is part of that stack, but thank you very, very much, Nicholas. I appreciate it. And once again, Nicholas hosts the comic reflection podcast interestingly enough within the, the next few weeks i think i'll be uh, spending the day with nicholas so looking for at least uh, a few hours i'm going to be out in his neck of the woods and we're going to try and get together very cool yep all right up next is a comment from david ace gutierrez who's the executive producer of our own pod dylan and he's the owner and operator of the katana banana we should have gave him a shout out earlier and we did that oh, katana yeah. story Oh, well. Uh, he says, I applaud Shag's bravery in admitting he doesn't like the early uh, Stan Lee, Jack Kirby work. It's okay. Everyone has their opinion. Interestingly, Shag couldn't take the fact that I don't like the Wolfman Perez Teen Titans. Well, sorry about that, David. Uh, not everyone's perfect. And then he goes on to say uh, that X-Men First Class series was wonderful. Highly recommended. Yeah, that, that X-Men First Class st- stories we covered in the X-Men Digest were wonderful. I absolutely love those. Uh, Jeff Parker, I want to say, I think I'm, if I'm off the top of my head. Um, really, really great stuff. Absolutely love that. And yeah, I, I did come clean on the la- on that episode where I basically said that you know the, the Stan and Jack work from like 1963 or so doesn't really hold my attention. But the stuff that they did around 1966 to 1968 really did sort of fire my imagination. So it's just a, a matter of timing. And Chris Franklin chimes in on this. Chris Franklin, of course, is from the Fire and Water Podcast Network with the uh, JLU cast he does with his lovely wife, and he does Superman Movie Minute with some not-lovely person, and he does many more podcasts. Chris says, uh, I want to give Shag crap for throwing off an early Jim, uh, I'm sorry, Jack, uh, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby Avengers and X-Men, but yeah, honestly, the stories don't quite hold up to the legend every issue. I think Lee and Kirby were getting burned out at this time, cranking out way too many new ideas too quickly. They were doing too many books. When Kirby cuts back to just Thor and FF with an occasional half-issue cap story, his work takes a gigantic leap forward, and we get things like the Galactus Saga and that first Black Panther story, and then they're in their groove that provides uh, the or that proves the legend. But rather than agree with Shag, I'll chalk it up to another crackpot belief like the Batman phase and Ray as a Skywalker. <laughs> <laughs> Both of those are actually axioms, Chris. You will find out soon enough. <laughs> I hear that in my head every time Shag offers an opinion. I just hear Ray as a Skywalker. I'm like, yeah, I can just dismiss this. Entirely. You guys are going to eat so much crow when Episode Nine comes out. Or I'm going to just 
height for a couple months. One or the other. <laughs> I think we think we know what the answer is there. Uh, Ed Bosnar writes in. He says, ah, where to start? First of all, nice job packing these three digests into a single episode. I really enjoyed your conversation. Of the three covered here, I only have the X-Men volume so far. And as with the previous two I have, Spidey and the first Avengers volumes, I mostly liked it just because I'm still so in love with the idea of Marvel Digest. <laughs> yeah, us too. Yep. He says, also, I find Chegg's willingness to admit he doesn't like the early leak Kirby stuff refreshing. Look at that, Chegg. You really hit a, uh, really hit a geyser. I did. Uh, I don't entirely agree with him, e.g. I liked pretty much all their run on the Fantastic Four, although I'm not as big a fan of their work in those initial issues of X-Men or some of the Avengers and Thor stories, but it's interesting to hear a more critical perspective. Now, to be fair, he just said he wasn't wowed by the X-Men or Avenger stuff, which is what we covered. Uh, and I've actually never read the Kirby uh, and uh, Lee stuff, the early Fantastic Four. I've read a couple issues here and there, but I haven't run that, read their run. So I may change my opinion, or maybe I'll still go the 63 stuff will be eh, but the 66 to 68 stuff I'll love. I don't know. But uh, so, yeah, interesting. Well, thank you, Ed. Then we heard from our buddy Paul uh, Wildenberger. Paul says, another great episode. I have to admit, I'm with Shag in regard to Lee and Kirby's X-Men stories presented here. Whoop, whoop. Wow. Uh, While the stories were good, the pacing was too slow for my taste. I have, of course, read much better stories from this creative team. Thank you. I mean, there's no doubt those guys. I mean, I said I liked all that stuff, but there's no doubt that they really kicked it into gear later on. I mean, I don't think anybody would suggest that the early issues of Fantastic Four are better than the Galactus saga. You know I mean? I don't right, think well, anybody does that. Well, even the Thor story we covered um, from the Thor Digest, which was like a four-issue Jack Kirby, Stan like Lee thing. The Ragnarok thing, yeah. The Ragnarok thing with that Magog or whatever his name was, which is amazing. Like, yeah, that, that comic right. was unfreaking believable. so yeah. good. Uh, he, Paul goes on, he says, like Rob, I would have liked more 80s and even 90s material represented. It felt like a big jump in storytelling techniques. Rob, I didn't know you personally, but I have to say the idea of you dressed as Hank Azaria from the birdcage is a mental image that will haunt me for a long time. Shudder. <laughs> I, I, I've, I've been exercising a lot, Paul. I, I wouldn't knock that so quickly, but okay. <laughs> I had sort of expunged that thought, but now it's back in my head. Thank you so much, Paul. <laughs> All right. Uh, then we heard again from Nicholas Prom, our buddy from Comic Reflections. We talked about him. He also does the Marvel Saga podcast, by the way. You should check out. And uh, I, I called him out on the episode because Nicholas is well known for his love of the Silver Age, and that's kind of his bag. And I said, I don't think Nicholas is going to talk to me again after I said the things about Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. And he says, I'll still talk to you, Shag, begrudgingly. Well, thank you, Nick. I, Nicholas, I appreciate that. I think uh, Nicholas is now a licensed bartender, by the way. Like, he's a licensed mixologist, so get him to make you some drinks when you're out there, Shay. Really? Yeah. Wow. Okay, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. awesome news. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. Although, the, depending on how much of a grudge he has, you might not want to drink something that he hands you, but we'll see. <laughs> uh, Martin Gray, the aforementioned Martin Gray, the guy who's not going to win the contest, uh, from the Two Dangers <laughs> for a Girl blog, he says, thanks for another enjoyable show. Not as enjoyable as the DC Digest. Well, you'll like this one then, Martin. Uh, mine, but these Marvel Digests are so formulaic that you probably could ignore them simply acknowledge that they're out there I'll never uh, get the universal praise uh, for Kitty's fairy tale I didn't like it's twee smugness at the time and looking at it now it's unreadable whoa laying a marker down my goodness um, Brian Linton comments. He says, "I'm a sucker for all good ages, good all ages material that I can read with my daughter. So I have to redouble my efforts to find these digests. I have to admit that I gave up after checking out out of all our at all our local grocery stores. Now that I think of it, I don't believe I checked our 7-Eleven. The hunt resumes. Brian, <laughs> you have to let us know how you're doing. 
And you could be like Rob and be lazy and just go to Books A Million. So I haven't. Well, A, I didn't go to Books A Million. I went to Barnes & Noble. And okay. second of all, I can't even find that Ant-Man and Wasp, I guess. I couldn't find it at Barnes & Noble either. So really? I've been able to find it. Yeah. I'm tripping over them down here. They're at all the grocery know. stores. If you want, I can pick you one up and send it yes. to you. Yeah, well, well, when we get together in Baltimore, again, you can bring it with you then. All right. There you go. Uh, Luke Jannon, Luke Jack and Andy, excuse me, from the Earth Direction, Earth Destruction Directive podcast and the Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror and more other show, more shows on the Two True Freaks podcast network. He says, listen to the episode yesterday. Very much enjoyed it. I only have the first Avengers Digest from this run of Marvels, but I'm going to be tracking down the rest of these as well. My oldest boy really enjoyed the Avengers, and I'm sure my kids will dig the ones discussed in this episode as well. Thank you, Luke. And yes, I think your family, your kids will love these. Oh, they're super fun. They're super fun. Uh, then we heard from Mike Peacock from the Justice's First Dawn, a classic JLA podcast. Uh, he posted a picture of DC Special uh, Blue Ribbon Digest number five, which was Secret Origins of Superheroes. It includes the uh, Secret Origins of the Justice League in that one. And he goes, for this coming recording about JLA number nine, I elect to read the story in this particular book. Might even make mention of some other stories. So think of this as a more uh, infantile sampler of Rob and Shag's Digest cast. <laughs> well, thank you for the compliment. Mike, we appreciate that. Uh, Sean Ross from the Pulp 2 Pixel Podcast Network, who he hosts, co-hosts with Greg Arugio of Marvel's Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast. He says, sweet, always a fun listen. Uh, I like to time exactly how long it takes Rob to go exasperated with Shag. It's a fun drinking game. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're drinking 90 seconds into the show, Sean. Yeah, I think uh, Rob said on, on Who's Who, he doesn't even get past the in-stock trades, usually. I don't. Uh, David Is Gutierrez follows up with, I love the patented color creative... Yes, whenever Firestorm <laughs> fire Man interrupts, kills me every time. And Rob's condescending, yeah, is also a fave. <laughs> David's heard that a lot himself, by the way. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Sean M. Myers, in regard to Digest Cast episode 5.5, says, I can't wait. Thank you, Sean. And I had to mention that, because Sean's one of our biggest supporters. Yes. He didn't really leave a comment this time, but I couldn't go without uh, have us saying Sean's name, just because he's always such a cheerleader for the Digest cast. We appreciate yes. Sean. Oh, yes. We love Sean. He's been on Film & Water Podcast a couple of times. Great guy. And uh, Chuck Coletta, who does the BGSU, is working on the BGSU Batman Conference. He's, he uh, plugged the show. He said, be sure to check out this great Digest cast podcast. Thank you, Chuck. We appreciate it. Uh, and then Max Romero from our own network. He hosts Plastic Cast and the Mirror Factory. He says, I used to lead a lot of, read a lot of Archie comics and all the weirdo offshoots. So when I saw this, I snatched it right up. Curious to know what Digest Cast thinks. And it's Comics Digest Magazine Captain Hero number one, which is, I guess, when Jughead was a superhero? I'm it appears like it. familiar with that. And it's got a Stan Goldberg cover of Jughead punching the crap out of some like kind of uh, generically covered colored uh, supervillains and it says see captain hero battle the fire the bomb monster the ghastly ghoul and many other not too nice villains the book is in i'd say maybe minus mint near mint condition uh <laughs> it's 95 cents i've never read these i have a couple of the archie superhero digest and we will get to them at some point on the show but i've never seen this one so it's very intriguing well i'm wondering if is this actually a digest I, yeah based on yeah. his thumb i guess yeah, it yeah, is yeah, yeah. yeah. So this isn't because again, yeah, you and I talked about, and I'm sitting, I'm, I'm rifling through a stack of stuff I have as we talk here because I'm looking because I have one of these uh, Archie digests that we talked about doing. So this isn't, you don't think this one's in there, huh? Hmm. Okay. I know, yeah, I mean, unless Max is 13 feet tall, I would say this has to be a digest based on well, the proportions that we're seeing. He might be. He's a big guy. I have no idea. I've never met him. One day. <laughs> Hopefully we'll fix that. Uh, and then I just want to give some shout-outs to a couple of folks, because uh, we've asked every time, say, folks, when you find the Marvel Digest, when you see them, 
please take a picture of uh, of them in the wild and you know tag us. We love seeing this stuff. Just quick shout out to some folks that uh, had did find the Marvel Digest, took a picture of it in the wild and sent us uh, sent, you know, tagged us. Uh, our thanks to Martin Gray, Tim Price, Keechi Baker, Michael Lane, Justice Trek the podcast, and BoldOutlaw.com. I'm sure I'm forgetting some others, but these folks all took pictures of them, you know, in their grocery stores or wherever they were, uh, and we really sincerely appreciate it. That's awesome. Then this is an older piece of feedback that I just missed a couple episodes ago. So forgive me, Derek. This is this, this is a big shout out to Derek Crab for the Fanholes podcast. Uh, on one of the previous episodes, we were talking about uh, Guardians of the Galaxy in one of the in stock trades picks, and, and I said, you know, is it really kind of unfair with if they promote the Guardians of the Galaxy in a trade paperback, and yet it's the original Guardians of the Galaxy, not you know the ones from the 30th century rather than the ones from the modern day with Star Lord and all that. And I thought that might be kind of like you know misleading. And he created this great little comic strip basically it's it's action figures of marvel boy from the guardians or they're called guardians 3000 now and it's got star lord from the movie and he's got this little kid and uh marvel boy says so shag says us original guardians owe the kid 12 bucks and by that logic and he's talking to star lord you owe derek for the movie tickets to the two films pratt since uh since i've yet to make any appearances in them and the little kid goes pay up mister and he even put a little Digest Cast logo up in the corner. So, thank you, Derek. These are hilarious. These, it's like the Toy Fair Theater just for us. You know. It's, oh, I uh, love his fumetties that he does. Those are oh, they're really, so much really, fun. Really fun. <laughs> really appreciate it, Derek. Thanks so much. Well, uh, I guess that's going to do it for this episode of Digest Cast. It's uh, now it's my turn, my pick for the next episode. Yep. Uh, so uh, yeah, I decided since we're going to be doing this one, I, I we've been putting this one off. We kept rescheduling, rescheduling. We didn't mean to let it go so long. So I'm picking something that is um, holiday related. That way, it's going to force us to do it on time. As my, <laughs> my goal. So uh, we want to do one for close to Halloween. Uh, of course, there was there's House of Mystery, there's ghosts, there's all sorts of things we're going to do. But as I decided to go, I decided to go even more off brand. It's a DC Digest. It's DC. Special Blue Ribbon Digest number 20, Dark Mansions of Forbidden Love. Oh, hot Where, damn. Finally. Know, the, the, probably the, the most expensive DC Digest out there. What did you pay, like about $1,000 for your copy, well, I think? I, I paid – okay, so I'm glad you picked this because, yeah, I paid $25 for this damn thing. <laughs> I haven't paid $25 for a comic. Maybe a trade paperback, but I haven't paid $25 for a comic in years. I'm just too cheap. And, of course, the minute I, I, I paid that, you know, Michael Bailey sending me tweets going, dude, I paid like $3 on eBay. I'm like, screw you, Mike. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm – I don't know that you're going to have to pay the amount I paid, folks. But, yes, it's Dark, Man- uh, Dark Mansions of Forbidden Love. And it reprints, what, three issues of the Dark Mansions of Forbidden Love comic, which well, a lot of people Well, two and then one other story that it just kind of oh, throws okay. in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But a it's, lot of people are at home probably going, there's a comic called Dark Mansions of Forbidden yes, Love. Yes, there DC. was. This, yeah. I, am ab- I need to do some research between now and this episode because I have to find out how this was put together because this was so – Completely uncommercial for them to do in nineteen. The comic or the digest? The, well, the, the well, the digest and the comic. Okay. The, when they published the comic, that stuff was in vogue. The the sort of gothic romance stuff. That I understand why they did that. But for had them to be to, had to be banking on dark shadows. They had to be. I, was dark shadows big in nineteen eighty two? Talk about the digest here. The digest. I don't know. Collecting it in in the that's what intrigues me, and so I would yeah. love to find out why the hell this this had to be somebody at the DC offices was just like let's what the hell let's just have a lark <laughs> and let's just do Dark Mansions of Forbidden Love. So we're gonna do that. It's uh, I'm really excited to talk about it. It's gonna be a fun book. I, I love the little corner box on the cover. This is the biggest little buy in comics. I love that. Yep. 
Awesome. Well, folks, that is going to do it. As Rob said, uh, remember, go out to our website, firewaterpodcast.com. Go to the Digest cast. Go to episode six. Leave your comments there for us to read in the next show. And be sure to tell us your favorite Digest and why in order to be entered for the contest to win all those Archie Digest and the JLA Day uh, Digest. <laughs> So uh, we want to hear from you folks, and we will read them on the air. Also, please go out to iTunes and leave us a review. That would be sincerely appreciated. That um, Those go a long way to help people find the show. And also you can find us on Twitter because Rob just can't stop. He's got a problem. And it's DigestCast on Twitter. Yep. And well, every time you create a, a Twitter account, a Nazi cries. So please go ahead and, <laughs> and uh, check out DigestCast on Twitter. I don't con- I don't leave a lot there, but every so often we'll do something Digest-related. And, and of course, uh, Derek William Crabb is always sending pictures. And people love to send the feed pictures of them finding Digest in the wild, which is great. I love seeing pictures of like the Digest actually on sale. So that stuff's terrific. Yep. Awesome. Okay, folks, that's going to do it. As always, remember, big things come in small packages. Hansel Brave in the Bowl. What's he think he's doing? Batmite may be an all-powerful being from the fifth dimension, but he's not a god, or more importantly, a network programmer. Someone's got to stop him. This sounds like a job for Ambush Bug. But first, a word from our sponsors.